I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Okay, this is episode 98 of the show. I'm getting tantalizingly close to the 100 mark. It's also nearly the end of the year. We're trying to figure out what we're going to do over Christmas. Might have a break, which would mean the 100th episode would be in January. But TBC on that. We'll have full info, full news next week on episode 99. Wow. 99 episodes. I actually can't believe that we've got this far with this project. But um, yeah, here we are. Here we are with it. And um, yeah, I have to say I'm enjoying it as much as I did on episode one, really. So long may it continue, I guess. Long may it continue. Okay. What do we got on the show this week? Well, it's a genuine legend of electronic music, really. It's A-Track. He won the DMC World Championships at the age of 15. Can you believe that? Can you imagine that? DMC, uh, especially at that time, it was 1997 that he won it. At that time, was in the culture just a legendary thing. I mean, like the <laughs> to have the status of a DMC World Champion, I mean, at any time, but particularly, I think, in that era... That was really the heyday of, I guess, traditional turntablism. That status is just unbelievable. And to achieve that at 15 is just, I mean, it's mind-blowing. It genuinely is. And since then, he's really had a career which is completely unique, I think. I can't think of anyone, really, who's done the same stuff, you know, the same breadth, certainly in these areas anyway. And, yeah, he's just gone on to... um really impressive things. For example, the Duck Sauce project with Armand Van Helden, which spawned you know, genuine hit records. 
He's run a label for 15 years, which we talk about. He's been Kanye West touring DJ, which we also discuss. Just a ton of different things. And he's managed to straddle different genres. I think that's maybe the most impressive thing. Because when you come up with something like turntablism, which is so niche, the ability to go from that to being a genuinely multi-genre kind of artist is really impressive. And I think I think that speaks to a, a, a serious talent, if that wasn't obvious already from achieving that stuff at such a young age. But yeah, just great to have him on. He's been doing the podcast circuit recently, as we mentioned, but I think we get some stuff out of him that he hasn't talked too much about in the past, I think, I hope. Yeah, just great to have him on, really. So just before we get started, a reminder that you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. There are two tiers, the solidarity tier, which costs £3.50 a month, or four US dollars, and that gets you bonus podcasts and other stuff, entry into the private area of our Discord server, etc. And the musicality tier, which is £8.50 a month or 10 US dollars, which gets you all that stuff, plus all the music that we release on Hot Flush Recordings. So you will have got my digital underground mixtape in high quality download formats a good few weeks ahead of the release. And that's true for all of the stuff that we release on Hot Flush and the other labels that we run too, like Who Whom and River Nation, although we haven't done a River Nation for a while. But yeah, we do release a lot of music and it's a kind of equivalent, I suppose, of a Bandcamp subscription, which we don't do on Bandcamp, although visit hotflush.bandcamp.com. But yeah, we don't do a subscription there. But musicality tier Patreon basically gets you that, plus all the other stuff too. So the bonus podcasts, and other business so yeah do that if you fancy doing it you can also donate to the podcast without a subscription scubaofficial.io slash support contains a couple of options to do that there via paypal or credit card or whatever that's a nice thing to do and people do do that so if you're enjoying the show then that's a way of showing your appreciation if you don't want to support financially that's completely understandable and completely cool Hit the five-star button wherever you listen to this podcast. Follow the show wherever you're listening to this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever. Hit the follow button. That really helps. You could leave a gushing review as well. That would be good. All of those things are good. There's also a Spotify playlist which contains all the music or lots of the music that we talk about on the show plus all the episodes. There's a link in the show notes to that Spotify playlist. And I mentioned the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. You can get in there if you're a supporter or not. And we'd love to have you in there. There's a great bunch of people talking about the show and other things too. So yeah, once again, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. Okay, without further delay, here is A-Track. A-Track, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hey, thank you. I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right, thanks. I actually, uh, uh, I played paddle for the first time this morning and I've been really struggling. <laughs> definitely hit that age where like strenuous exercise or certainly new kinds of strenuous exercise. It's, um, so it's a lot basically. But, um, yeah, I, I, I didn't play paddle today. <laughs> I'm going to, I'll do my best to stay awake. I'm not, <laughs> not making any, any, any promises. But anyway, yeah, um, great that we're doing this finally. Um, yeah, you, you've been doing the rounds podcast-wise. I, I, uh, I realize is, is, is there a is there a reason for that? Have you got some big thing going on that I should know about before we before we start? No, doing this? <laughs> okay. No, I don't know. I, I don't know. These these things come in come in phases, I guess. 
but yeah, I was on the, our mutual friend Will Clark's uh, podcast a month or two ago, and then well, some stuff that I did recently, I guess, is centered around um, the fact that this year is the Fool's Gold 15th anniversary. We've had some events all year, and there's a there's a few that are coming up now, like the last two anniversary events of the year. So done some stuff around that. But aside from that, I don't know, maybe people see me on one thing and, they, and, and they're like, oh, let's get him. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. I hope, or maybe they, they hate it. I don't know. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's a good sign if you're getting repeat bookings, I suppose. So, so Fool's Gold is your label, of course. Yes. 15 years. That's, that's pretty good going. Thanks. Um, yeah, thanks. It's actually, um, I'll let you in on a secret. Technically, we're, we're, the, the label is 16. Well, I actually had twenty. I had two thousand and seven down on my notes. So I was like, there you <laughs> go. Yeah. But you know what? We 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 even made like hats and t-shirts that say since two thousand seven, and no one um, has counted. <laughs> no one said, "Hey, hey, guys, um, little question." But uh, I, I don't know. I think with uh, the way things picked up after the pandemic and everything. Last year, we knew it was our 15th anniversary, but we were just getting a bunch of things back up and running. And I was also doing some duck sauce projects and other things. And, you know, um, we got to sort of like the last quarter of the year and I was like, shit, we didn't do anything for the anniversary. And we just decided to celebrate in 2023 this whole year. Yeah, fair enough. You know, I think everybody's kind of on a uh, what is time mindset after the pandemic so so here we are right yeah absolutely how, how um when did you start the hot flush we're actually 20 this year we've been doing wow, amazing 20, yeah uh which really is a long time um yeah i mean i it's funny because i didn't do we had we had this is the first time we've ever done anything to mark any kind of time periods like uh i remember when when it was the 10th year I was very much like, no, let's not tell anyone. We don't want, we don't want people to know how old we, <laughs> old we are. Okay, it's this crazy mindset to have. Uh, and then, but then this year, you know, it's like you know, twenty years is quite a long time. We should probably do something to, you know, to to mark it somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you don't want to be ageist. No, well, that's yeah, exactly. Certainly not in the current climate. That could be it could blow back on you mm-hmm. quite badly. Uh-huh. I know that it's also it's Ed Banger's twenty years um, this year. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah, I think there's um. I guess there's a generation, right, of, of artists yeah. who who started labels and, and, and sort of, I guess, came through around the same time. But, I mean, I was going to ask, like, what what are the differences for you guys that, well, well, yeah, what are the major differences between running a label now and running a label in 2007 when you started, would you say? Um, a lot. <laughs> I mean, a, a lot in the, um, in the nuts and bolts and in, in um you know, obviously just how music is distributed is distributed. Obviously streaming didn't even exist back then. Um, so yeah, I would say primarily, you know, we started Fool's Gold when um, the digital component of a release was uh, was an MP3 download. And of course now we're, the, we're in the streaming age. Um, I mean, we also saw vinyl sort of go down and then come back up. And, and, you know, everything that went with that because plants closed down and then people started buying vinyl again and then it was harder to press vinyl. So all of that. But, you know, I think there's a, there's the whole sort of direct-to-consumer um, business model that's a lot bigger in recent years than, than it was when we started as well. So we were still kind of, you know, in mostly the old school model of having a label in those years. 
Um, but I think also in the sense of whether a label is even necessary and, and the services that a label provides to an artist, there's a lot that's changed because, you know, the, the ease of access in, in recent years of platforms like DistroKid and, and, you know, other similar ones where anyone can, you know, upload and so, sort of self-distribute their own releases um, has made it such that an artist doesn't need a label in the same way. I mean, I've also seen a lot of sort of hybrid distributor slash labels, you know, come rise up in recent years too, where, where, you know, the deals have changed a lot. Um, and, and there's these companies that are kind of distributors who, you know, offer some label services, but I would say in a general sense, um, for many years now, we're, we're very aware that, um, artists don't need to sign like a label to a label like us to put their music out. I also think that a lot of majors have become, majors are signing a lot more. They're developing less, but they're signing more. So, um, you know, cause there's been kind of, a, uh, kind of a gold rush in the last five years, I think with majors ever since the record industry as a whole kind of started turning a profit again, bigger companies have been like sign, 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 like almost like the stock market, you know? Yeah. It's a very much a kind of volume game, isn't it? Right. It's this throws. Yeah. So for, for artists who are looking for a deal, it's not even that hard to get a deal. So if there's an artist who's making great music and we're, we're sort of looking at them, we're very aware that they could also sign to a bigger company with more money or they could just self release. Mm. So, you know, we've had to ask ourselves for the last five, six, seven years, you know, very transparently or very frankly, the question of like, why would someone sign to us? You know, so, so we've really leaned into the curation angle of what we do and the sort of family angle of Fool's Gold. Fool's Gold's a label that also throws a lot of events and has a whole community around it. So to us, if someone signs to Fool's Gold, that artist is probably aware that they, they're surely aware that they could also put their own music out or that there's another company out there that, you know, it has an even bigger machine. But chances are they want to be at the company that released maybe some other records that meant a lot to them, you know, coming up and they want to be part of that lineage and or they want to be part of this family, maybe play some of the events or maybe they like our, our branding or maybe they just want to get, you know, our ears and and our eyes and, and sort of our help in, in finishing up something that, that they can also mo- that they can already mostly do by themselves. Mm. And, and that's the type of artists that we mostly sign are artists that are mostly autonomous and they'll come to us with usually an album or an EP or something that's practically done. And we, we just help, you know, get it to, to that finish line and, and, you know, connect a few dots, maybe help with a couple guests or, or help choose like a mix engineer, definitely have fun with the packaging, the artwork, and then how to present it to the world. And then we can get creative with a lot of relationships with, we have, you know, uh, in this community that we're all in internationally, you know, I think, in a sense, you know, I think even your label and ours, we're all part of a similar community, even though I've been a fan and admirer of yours for a long time, but you and I haven't really connected before, but I see what you do for years and years. And I feel like we're all part of, you know, there's like-minded people in all cities across the world that are running companies, labels, brands, 
with a similar mindset. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in a sense, when we put out someone's music, whether it's you on your label or us on ours, we plug these artists into that community where they become also peers with, you know, other like-minded labels and artists and you know yeah 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 i mean absolutely that's i think that's the that's the that's the danger of, do, of going on your own you know that's the danger of doing doing everything yourself or thinking that you think you can do everything yourself because i mean technically absolutely yeah. you can like i mean the tools are there for you now as, as an artist as a brand new artist as well you don't need anything really but actually there's quite a lot more to it really isn't there than that there's a kind of yeah like you say a, glo- a global ecosystem really there which you which it being plugged into really really helps for sure for sure exactly so let me ask you though about the uh, direct to consumer thing is, is is an interesting one because we've talked a lot about Bandcamp on the show recently probably too much to be honest. But um, how, how do <laughs> well, you guys? Uh, and, and oh, sorry, I'm not even I'm I'm not big on Bandcamp. So so well that was that was that was going to be my question. Yeah. So how do you guys actually do it? We 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 don't uh, we're on Bandcamp, but we don't uh, we don't sell merch and vinyl on there. We just make our music available on there. Um, because we have our own web store and obviously the, you know, the percentages, the cuts are better if we just of course sell out of our web store than if we sell through Bandcamp. And we have cultivated, you know, a, a decent enough fan base or audience that knows they can buy stuff on store.foolsgoldrex.com, whether it's a, you know, a seven inch, a 12 inch, a, a t-shirt, a, a cap. There's part of me that's always wish that we w- we were bigger on Bandcamp because that's a, a, a very rich community. And I love that ecosystem. And I love that people, I love how people mutually, artists mutually support each other on Bandcamp. And a fan will go and buy, you know, something from one label and then buy, I mean, even myself, when I buy music on Bandcamp, I, I rarely go and buy just one thing. Yep. You go from one label to another, one artist to another. So I wish we could be bigger on there, but even on the music side, you know, the Bandcamp is an afterthought to our distributor. I think even in general, you know, as a label nowadays, especially in electronic music, you know, fundamentally there's this kind of a choice that you have to make early on, which is like, do you want to even try to play the game of streaming services and DSPs? Do you want to try to get any kind of placement on Spotify, Apple Music, Tidal, Amazon, all of those if so, then you kind of need to go through some sort of traditional distributor. And from the moment you do that, being present on Beatport, TrackSource, BeatSource, Bandcamp, all these platforms that are important to the DJ ecosystem becomes something where you have to like really sort of, uh, you know, stomp your feet <laughs> with your distributor and be like, hey, 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 it's crazy, I need isn't to it? be on Beatport. It's crazy how irrelevant downloads have become. They're just completely nothing, are they, to those big, well, to any kind of serious distributor? Yeah. And, and, you know, we love our distributor and I'm not knocking anyone in particular here, but like... No, it's just the nature of the business, right? It's the nature of the business. I mean, at the end of the day, the numbers are small. Like it's, you know, and also I love Beatport and I've done business with Beatport and, and, and I, I think they're amazing and essential. It's always a, a sort of sobering reminder when you find out the numbers of you know a beatport top 10 record just how many downloads that is it's small it's really small um and and you know bless them and and they're important but it's small i understand that for you know any distribution company it's it's um it's not a priority so we have to have like our own direct relationship with with you know the label reps at beatport and try to get you know, try to get some real estate, some placement and, and encourage our artists to make charts. And even if we want to give Beatport like a one week exclusive on something before it goes on all the other 
platforms, our distributor just doesn't really get it. And we have to just be forceful and say, we are doing this, you know? <laughs> and Bandcamp is even less understood, I think, by distributors. Um, I don't, I have to say, I, the part I don't remember, and I'm, there's, you know, thankfully at this point, after this many years, I have a label manager that, you know, handles the nuts and bolts of this stuff. I don't even remember. We might even self-upload on Bandcamp. I don't fully remember that part. Yeah, I mean, that's normally how it works. I yeah. think so. Because yeah. we, we, we get to Beatport and TrackSource through our distributor, but I think we self-upload to Bandcamp. But even with that, it's like... Yeah, that, that would be... Yeah. Um, but, but again, we don't, um, we don't sell our vinyl on there. We don't sell our, our merch on there. So, you know, we're, we're not big on there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating thing because it's become such a like a sort of culturally important um, brand name, right? I mean, and, and just, just using the term brand name would not be popular amongst many of the people that love Bandcamp, right? It's almost yeah. this kind of, it's like this kind of sort of anti-capitalist outpost in the music industry, which is obviously, yeah, the music industry is um, as capitalist, <laughs> capitalist as it gets, isn't it really? But like, yeah, it, it's, it's funny how, um, how much of a symbol it's become, right? And then the kind of the frenzy of, reaction around the two takeovers that they've been and it's yeah, yeah, yeah i mean i sure. i did a big long podcast about it and and you know basically one of the main takeaways really from you know, reading all all sorts of stuff about it all the all the numbers all the analysis was really that it's it's just really small you know it's just small and it's yeah. it's it's a but it's a symbol but but i but yeah but i also for so many things whether it's a marketplace for you know, DJ focused music or even a career path for so many things in this stuff that we do. I'm a big believer in, in, um, you know, equilibrium points and just like finding a, a sustainable balance where it doesn't matter if something is big or small. It's more about, you know, um, do the ins and outs kind of match up and, um, is, is it sustainable even in, not only in terms of finances, but over time is, you know, Will people come back and you know get that same thing again? So I think on a marketplace like Bandcamp, and again, I'm like you, like you pointed out, I'm sure Bandcamp uh, users probably don't even want to use the the word marketplace, uh, but whatever. On a platform like that, even if it's relatively small, um, I do think that there's a, a ton of re repeat customers. I think people go and support artists on Bandcamp Fridays time and time again and that and i think that was so essential during the pandemic right yeah absolutely for sure and i think like it's a what it's great for actually from an artist perspective more than a label perspective is the ability to identify people who really do love your music yeah right because those are the people who, who who seek it out and and you've got their email you know you can contact them directly that's hugely valuable you know because that's yeah. that's the big issue with with dsps and with streaming it's like yeah i've got x thousand you know, followers on Spotify, whatever, yeah, X thousand monthly listeners. But who are these people? You've got no way of telling, you know, and right. it's just You're it's right. hugely valuable data that you get from the bank so. mm -hmm. But it's, you know, I do think that for me, there's this um, sort of paradox or thing that I've tried to resolve and I've never fully found the fix for this where at the end of the day, a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, DJ consumers buy vinyl on Bandcamp. And, you know, if you know my history, um, vinyl is something that, you know, is a big part of who I am. I'm, I'm you know, scratch DJ, sure. DMC kid, whatever. Uh, so you would think that this platform where a lot of people buy vinyl would be a place where there's a track vinyl. And somehow I just, you know, by having 
the Fool's Gold web store and, you know, all these sort of like behind the scenes infrastructure things that, that people on the outside don't know about. Um, I've just never been able to like properly get my vinyl uh, performing well on Bandcamp. So, you know, but again, there's, I try to get it to stores. I try to you sure. know, cultivate a direct audience of, on, on the Fool's Gold site, but you want to be everywhere and it's never, it's never actually doable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's talk about vinyl actually, because yeah, you, you mentioned that there was a big decline and there's been a sort of relative resurgence of it. Yeah, and like, and as you say, you know, you are, you know, you're a DMC champion. So I mean, this is <laughs> you're, you're, this this must be a a hugely important format to you. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So tell me, tell me about how you feel about the format now. Like, I mean, do you do you still play with vinyl out? No, hell no. <laughs> I'm not a vinyl <laughs> purist. Right. Okay. People, yeah. Actually, the funniest thing, but I, you know, I scratch at all my shows. Um, a lot of shows I play on CDJs, either with Rekordbox or with Serato connected to CDJs. Sometimes I use turntables with Serato, but it's, I, I never play with like actual vinyl. Um, there's plenty of shows where I'm scratching on CDJs and then I'll have people come up to me at the set and be like, Man, I love vinyl. That was awesome. <laughs> vinyl, yeah. <laughs> they can absolutely see me on CDJs, but somehow, you know, that that that's what connects in their brain when they when they hear scratches and, and you know, God bless them. Um, yeah, I don't play. I, I don't play records. I don't. Um, I love records. I think um, you know they're actually my, I uh, my my own record collection was sort of spread in different cities for years and years, and it's only a year ago that I finally kind of recollected, you know, sort of recalled all, all the various bits of my record collection in one place. And it's been such a joy this past year to sort of dig through stuff again and rediscover and also just be amazed at how much I remember <laughs> records that I bought 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Um, so I'm very sentimentally attached to records, but I absolutely don't play them out and I don't miss it. I don't miss checking in, you know, crates, having airlines lose my crates, stress out about getting to the next city without my record crate. Um, my back doesn't miss it. I'm happy to play on all kinds of digital formats. I still buy records and I'm still happy to press records and sell records for sure. I, I think, um, you know, as much as we're in the digital age and, and, you know, the industry for years tried to push things into the cloud and whatever, however streaming works, you know, everything on your phone, I think people overlooked how much any, anyone would miss, you know, uh, a tactile experience, just holding something in your hand. Right. You know, there's probably a similar conversation about eBooks. I don't know. I'm not in the eBook industry, but you know, just holding something, the smell of, of a, a dusty record sleeve, um, the attachment you have to your copy of the rec of a record that has like some wear and tear on the top right corner and like a little, you know, a little, bit missing or a sticker or something written on a marker from the person that had the record before you, all that stuff. There's so much patina and so much attachment to those details. Um, I do think that there's, you know, kind of a paradox with the, the reasons why people buy records now. I think they've become collectible objects. I don't think anyone really plays a record. Yeah. You know what? I'll I listen was, to sorry. I was, if I could just interrupt you there, I was, um, yeah, of course with a, a good friend of mine today who has a 13 year old daughter who's great getting very into music 
and is desperate to buy records, yeah. but has no intention of playing them. Absolutely no intention of yeah. playing them at all. And just wants them because they're an expression of the music that she likes. It's her saying exactly. to the world, I like this music and I have this object to prove it. You know, yeah. and that's, that's obviously fulfilling a very different function in the kind of, I guess, the, the music industry, as it were. But it's still an important function, right? Absolutely. There's nothing wrong. I, I, at the end of the day, we want our our fans to feel like they have, they can buy into something we create. And I, as a fan, never stop buying records. But even, you know, it's funny, especially now that my, my records are back in one place, there's, you know, I'll continue to buy some of my favorite releases of, you know, throughout the months of, of the year. But in the spirit of completion, I don't want my collection to end at a certain date, but I know very well I'm never going to buy, you know, the LP version of, you know, the vinyl version of whatever album came out that I really liked any given year. I just want it to be part of my collection out of attachment. And like you said, to express that this is an important record to me, but, um, you know, even the fact that the, the, we're all pressing, you know, various colors and, and, you know, ink splatter versions of, you know, this record and that record and, uh, seven inch and 10 inch formats, at least for us at Fool's Gold, sell even more than 12 inch because they all have that limited kind of collectible connotation. Uh, Very few people are out there playing, you know, said 10 inch. It just looks cool (laughs) that it's a different format. It, you know, um, I've gotten to know the, uh, the De La Soul guys uh, over the years. And, you know, earlier this year, their catalog was finally made available, right? After 20-something years of dispute with their, with their label. And um, when their new label was, was um, or not even label, sort of distribution partner, was pressing up finally copies of Three Feet High and Rising and De La Soul is Dead and all these classic albums, I, you know, um, I'm in a group chat with Pasta News and a bunch of other, you know, oh, DJs nice. and music. That's, and that's and cool. yeah, it's just awesome. I'm, I, I'm always, I can't believe that I get to talk to, you know, my heroes like that. And Pasta News jumps in the group chat um, where he knows there's a bunch of DJs. And he's like, hey guys, so they're telling us that we should press, you know, the red vinyl, blue vinyl. Someone was telling me that they don't actually sound as good as, you know, regular black vinyl. You know, what do you guys think? And I kind of jumped in and told him, like, whoever's telling you this is right. Like, yes, those limited colorways, that's what the fans want to buy because they want a collectible version of an album they love. And the truth is most people won't really play it out. So that's just kind of what it is. Which is kind of a shame. But actually, you know, as, as I just previously said, like, if that's not the primary reason, I mean, that's, that's still fine. It's still okay. You know, if that's what people yeah. want and that's, you know. It makes Again, I, 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 people think I'm Mr. Vinyl guy. I myself buy records that I know very well I'm not going to play out. I'll play them in my living room in speakers that look lovely. And, and that's where they'll get played. And maybe once in a blue moon, I'll, you know, I'll do a, a vinyl set at like one or two venues that friends of mine have. But but no, I, I, I don't really play these records out and. That's just what it is. I mean, those De La Soul albums must have flown. <laughs> they must yeah, have impressed an enormous amount, right? Yeah, and, and, and I think um, I, I was really happy to see um, that when those albums finally got properly released this year, that you know, they're, the whole the team that they assembled for that did it right. They you know they made cassettes too, and they made all kinds of collectibles and merch, and it's you know. 
I'm I'm a lifelong De La Soul fan. I was happy to be able to, you know, put in my order and just, you know, wave the flag, you know. 100%. So I wanted to talk about, um, well, I mean, you're from Montreal, right? Yep, yep, originally. Yep. And I, I learned 20 minutes ago that <laughs> your brother is in Chromio. I didn't realize yeah. that. You're, yeah. You're from a really musical family. Yep, yeah, it's just me and him. Wow, um, okay. So, yep. yeah, go on, sorry. Uh, I was just gonna say we we you know we still we make music together now we've 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 uh, not only are we brothers but we we've always had our hands in each other's projects you know since the start yeah like anybody that met me you know in if someone was in the hip hop scene in Montreal in 1996 and saw some 14 year old kid show up and scratch you know at a at a hip hop event. You know, they also met my brother. He was the tall guy who was like somewhere behind me, probably helping me carry my bag or something and just kind of whisper some words of encouragement and, you know, <laughs> give me a little pep talk before I hit the stage. <laughs> right. Yeah. So he's older, I take it. Yeah. Yeah. Dave's, uh, we're, we're four years apart. He's older. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So, yeah. So tell, okay. I, I obviously have to ask you this. Like, tell me about becoming DMC champion age 15. I mean, like, how, how did you start? How do you, you know, how did you pick up this, you know, the, um, the mixer in the first place? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, you know, I started, uh, in, in, in our parents' basement, kind of like, like, uh, any, you know, hip hop fan. Was it your brother's decks? No, it was, uh, my, my dad's belt drive oh, turntable that really wasn't right. made for scratching, but, you know, I, I think, um, we, we were very close even at, you know, even at that age, when I was like, you know, 12 years old and he was 16, I was, whatever him and his friends were listening to, whatever cassettes they were passing around, I would, you know, grab those cassettes and listen to. So when they got into hip hop, I got into hip hop. And, um, you know, I think in the mid nineties, anybody that heard scratching, you know, on, uh, on a record, tried it at some point. And I certainly did. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and, yeah. and most people tried it and were sort of like, um, maybe scared off or mystified or, or some people sort of tried it casually, but sort of moved on for whatever reason. When I tried it, it didn't sound that bad. It, I kind of figured it out rather fast and, um, and it just became this passion and, and it really just started with that. It started with me having some sort of knack, you know, and, um, but then I just really dove in, you know, and I, I think people have all kinds of things to say about, talent and, and whether you're born with something and you know how much is how much is uh in you from the start and how much is hard work and I, the hard work is the bigger part at least for me you know sure. I, I think, how much music let, let me just ask you how much music yeah. had you done before you started djing like that like had you learned um, instruments I, like yeah uh, a bit a bit i i took piano lessons after school for like for about two years, I think. Mm. So yeah. again, just sort of being around my brother and like really just wanting to be like him. He played the guitar since he was pretty young and was in, in bands with his friends at school. So there's definitely a big part of me that like wanted to find my instrument, you know, and I tried the piano and it wasn't particularly good at it and sort of gave up. And when I figured out some sort of knack, some sort of, you know, uh, I don't know, ability with scratching when I, when I tried it, I was also just excited that I found my thing, you know, that I was like, oh, this well, that's is what I was going to say. Right. Because I mean, this, yeah. this, uh, it really rings a bell with me. Cause I, uh, I, I played piano and stuff from, from a pretty young age, but never really 
got my head around it. You know, it never really made, I mean, I, you know, it kind of made sense, but it wasn't ever something that I really wanted to do. And it was when I picked up a guitar actually, okay. that it was like, fuck, I can, I can do this, you know? And suddenly it was like, yeah, I'm going to want to do this all the time. I was going to sit there <laughs> on my own and play the guitar because it's fun. And it sounds like it was exactly the same sensation for you, right? You just feel like oh, I yeah. can do this and it's, it's great, you know, and you just do it. Yeah. And with scratching, there's so many possibilities that open up. Um, I mean, basically, in the years where I, when I got into it, you know, which is around 95 or so, th- there was kind of this explosion in scratching in general, where, you know, there, there was DJs like Hubert and Mixmaster Mike, the Invisible Scratch Pickles, who were revolutionizing scratching itself and what you can do with it. And even just like the identity of a scratch DJ, the the word turntablist was coined by this guy, Babu, one of my favorite DJs for life. He was part of a crew called the Beat Junkies in LA. New York had the Executioners, um, Rock Raider and Rob Swift and, and um, you know, Mr. Sinister, Totally Clips, these four incredible DJs. Uh, and, and there was so much innovation. So, um, and it was, you know, that era of turntablism was when DJs started saying, we're musicians too. We're using the turntable as a musical instrument. So as I sort of discovered this world, even as a kid, as a 13, 12, 13 year old up in Montreal, you know, not even part of a scene yet, not even able to see a, a DJ in the flesh anywhere. I was too young to yeah, go you anywhere. Yeah, you couldn't go to a club. Yeah, exactly. No, so but but I would, you know, I found out about the, you know, the VHS tapes of DMC competitions and, and that's exactly what I was going to ask you. That's exactly what I was because oh, yeah. that's how I learned everything. Yeah, no, because I had a couple of friends at school who, you know, not at your level, but became pretty good at scratching, and that's how they did it. They got VHS tapes and they just watched the moves and they figured figured it out like that. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, in those years, and obviously the internet was barely <clears throat> nascent, so there wasn't much information that was even available on there. The you know. It's that beautiful romantic thing of any subculture, whether whether you're talking about graffiti, skateboarding, you know, scratch DJing, and you know, all those things are comparable to me because you, you figure out that you're that in every city there's a couple people like you who are into what you do, and you start collecting the magazines and and the albums that have to do with that culture. And with scratching, as much as with skateboarding, and I I don't know how to skateboard, but I'm just drawing a parallel. People collect these video these, yeah, these VHS tapes, these cassettes and study, you know, everything about the way that, you know, these superhuman characters are doing this amazing thing, but not only what the tricks are, but, you know, the, the style itself, how you flow, how you put these patterns together, but also like how you stand, what's your posture when you're doing this thing? What, what's your expression on your face? What, you know, what, what, what's this, like, how do you make it look easy all the way down to how do you dress? It just becomes this thing that you, you, you absorb. So for me, at first I was listening to, you know, albums and cassettes that had scratching on them. So in 94, 95, I was listening to anything that DJ Premier did. I was listening to anything that Pete Rock did, but I was also kind of, I was so young that anything I could find was still pertinent to me. So, you know, even Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince albums that were, five, six years old by then were still new to me. So I was listening to whatever Jazzy Jeff was doing too. But, you know, any hip hop magazine, um, the source rap pages, I remember around 94, 95, there was a DJ issue of rap pages magazine. And then there was these mm. interviews with Premiere, with the beat junkies, with, you know, all of my 
new heroes and I was just trying to like decipher what they were saying. Um, (laughs) And there was literally new scratches that were being invented in those years. I was just trying to figure it out. And then around that same time, my my brother started doing a, a college radio show. I guess in North America, college radio radio is probably comparable to pirate radio in, in the UK. It's kind of where you hear underground music, right? Sure. And through doing this this um, college radio show, and he wasn't even old enough to be in, in uni or college himself, but he sort of like, through a friend, was able to, to get, get a show at this university station. He became kind of a part of the underground music scene in Montreal, and I would sometimes just go and hang out as the younger brother at the radio show. And I met a few local DJs through that, including Kid Koala, who is world-renowned to this day, right. but at the time was just kind of making his way up in Montreal. Um, and so when I met some of those DJs, they also showed me videotapes. You know? So I would go to the local record shop, buy the DMC tapes, but some of those other DJs had kind of literally their own video cassette of when Qbert came to Montreal a year prior, you know, or a few things like that. And I, you know, I was, I was just, th- these were, you know, artifacts of information. I would just observe these videotapes and, and listening, listen to scratches on records. I would even, yeah, right. Yeah. I, I, I would listen to, if I had a copy of a, if there was a, a record that had a scratch solo on it. And if I had that on vinyl, I would like, I figured out that I could turn the platter off and play that record really slowly and try to, you know, try to decipher a scratch by playing it in slow motion. Oh, right. Okay. You know? right. So okay. it was yeah. investigative reporting. <laughs> it was an, and sure. yeah, but because I was, because I was so young and there was all these new scratches that were being created, you know, around that point in time that the other local DJs were trying to figure out but you know it was very new to experienced djs for me i was just taking everything in at the same time so i was also you know initially i was kind of just the first dj in my city to figure out some of these new scratches um that djs 10 years older than me you know couldn't wrap their head around right because they were used to doing things in, you know, in the traditional way. Whereas to me, I was just taking in all these new sounds, you know, indiscriminately, just, you know, whether it was new or old, you know? Absolutely. But yeah, that's how it started. And and I, and I entered these battles, you know, pretty, uh, pretty soon, pretty quickly. And, and uh, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me ask you about the, like the competition element, like, because of the culture here, like, you know, coming from a, from a sort of European, I guess even the kinds of music, well, because I was going to say house and techno kind of viewpoint, but I was very much into sort of drum and bass and that kind of stuff in this period. Yeah. Which I, and like, you know, we had like DJ Hype, who is kind of like the, the kind of drum and bass scratch DJ. But I just wanted, in, in the kind of culture of turntablism, like how important is the competitive aspect and, and how important then is DMC as a competition? It, I would say, especially in that era, it, that's changed over time, but in that era, in the mid '90s, and I ended up winning the. I won the DMC in '97, so mid to late '90s, I, I continued to compete for a couple of years after that. It was, um, I would say that the DMC and, and the comparable um, battle franchises were very central to turntablism. It, it was the catalyst. It was the playground. There was definitely right. many DJs who you know, earned their stripes and became top, top turntablists 
without going through the battle arena per se, or without that being the way that they got known. Um, mm. You know, Z-Chip, for example, uh, is one of them. Um, most turntablists that you heard of went through that arena because there's something about the battle scene that just pushed the competing DJs t- to innovate. You had to come with something new if you wanted to, you know, be like every DJ was going to do something similar to last year's winner. So if you wanted to stand out, you had to just come with something fresh and new. Mm. And so it really was the playground for innovation. But, and, and you're right. Um, the jungle and drum and bass, that scene was closely connected. Um, you know, I became very close to DJ Craze all, all the way back in those years and to this day. Yeah, I was going to mention him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, that's my brother. You know, that's, that's, he's, for, 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 for life, he's one of the, you know, my closest, um, my closest allies. I mean, literally, we were in a crew called the Allies right. <laughs> in the DJ scene. And, um, and he, you know, he really embraced German bass during the years that we were sort of battling side by side. And so I, I was kind of getting a, a viewpoint into that scene through him. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, but also, like, I was purely a hip-hop DJ in those years. And for about 10 years, for the first 10 years of my career, all I cared about was hip-hop. But I was half of my bookings were at raves because raves loved scratch, scratching. I think rave kids would trip out <laughs> watching scratch DJs. And at raves... You know, there was also jungle DJs and jungle bass DJs and all kinds of, you know, the, the other subgenres of electronic music. So I got to know, you know, some of the other subgenres through getting booked at raves. I think raves were really good at at sort of um, connecting dots between all these scenes that were all kind of cousins of each other. Sure. Uh, you know, that's where everything would come together. Yeah, absolutely. Just, but, just but, looking you know, on I would the... Say that in... oh, go ahead, sorry. No, I was just going to just stick on the, the competition aspect for a moment. Yeah. Can you, what is the format of a competition like that? Like what, like literally what is it? There's a couple different battle, battles, <laughs> battle franchises that exist and, and each one has a different format. There's kind of two main types of battles. So DMC, which historically has been the better known um, DJ battle, their format is what we call exhibition style. So each DJ does a six minute routine and each DJ does, does their routine, their set once. So the judges get to see one DJ after the other and then they sort of take notes. And, and just from that one six minute set, they pick, you know, the top three winners. Um, there's other battles that are head to head where there's, you know, quarterfinal heats, semifinals, you know, final round. And, and those routines, those sets are even shorter. It'll be, a minute and a half, sometimes two minutes. Um, and, and, you know, that's more sort of um, like a sports style. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a pressurized environment right there. It's got to be, right? Well, but, yeah, and, and both formats have their form of pressure. Of course, the head-to-head style battle, you know, you're facing off with someone. So that's one type of pressure. But the DMC set where you have one chance to do this thing that you've been working on the whole year. And if something goes wrong, you, you, that's it. That's your one, that's your one shot. That's, that's a whole different kind of pressure too. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. So it's yeah, and, and, and that's, that's, that was how, that's the environment where I had my first experiences for the first many years of DJing. So even just performing under pressure and, and, 
um, learning to sort of, you know, block off whatever's going on around me and just get into this, like, you know, Olympic gymnast level <laughs> type of concentration. Yeah, right. That's what I know. Oh, yeah. You know, everything. I didn't really know how to DJ aside from that for the first many years. That was going to be my question. Yeah. So were you, were you yeah. able to play in clubs at that age? I mean, I was getting booked, but people were booking oh, so me were. Okay. For, right. for the, for the, yeah, I was, especially once I started winning, you know, even just the local DMC rounds, you know, from the moment I was Montreal champion, then, then that took me to, you know, being Canadian champion, world champion. From the point I started getting some sort of notice, then people wanted to book me in a couple of different cities. So, I mean, by the way, I also had to like, I didn't have an agent. I was, you know, 15 years old, learning how to deal with people calling, you know, the house phone at, at my parents' house and <laughs> what, what, you know, figure out my own bookings and, and, you know, pretty quickly learned how to just do my own um, booking contracts on my parents' fax machine. All, <laughs> I had to learn all that stuff at, at 15, 16. It was, it was pretty funny. Wow. Um, and for those early years, either my brother or my mom would accompany me, chaperone me to, to my shows, especially if there was stuff out of town. And yeah. by the time I was maybe 17 or so, 17, 18, I started traveling by myself. Um, but yeah, I had to figure out all that stuff, how to deal with even just like the sort of the responsibility of, of juggling schoolwork and, and, you know, doing interviews and photo shoots and magazine stories and, and, um, yeah, bookings, contracts, payments, all that stuff. Yeah, sure. And when you won it at that age, there must've been a huge amount of press tension. Yeah. Um, more so than you would imagine now, I think, you know, now for a, and for a while now, uh, turntablism and scratch teaching has kind of gone back to being a little bit in the fringes. Mm. Um, paradoxically, because I think DJs are bigger than ever on, on a, you know, awareness level worldwide. It's a different kind of DJ now, right? <laughs> it's a different, yeah, exactly. Um, but in those years, there was a lot of excitement about around turntablism and DMC and, on any given year, you know, most, certainly hip hop fans, but even music fans and, you know, people knew who Qbert was, who Rock Raider was, who DJ Noise was, who Craze was. So when I won the DMC, it just, you know, propulsed, propelled my name kind of around the world. And there, I didn't even fully realize it right away, but there was music fans everywhere who, you know, were just aware that there was, you know, a teenager from Canada called A-Track who was yeah. you know, doing something. And I remember getting, you know, getting featured in Interview Magazine, which is Andy Warhol's old magazine. Like it was that type of yeah. conversation. Awareness. It wasn't just like the specialized underground hip hop magazine. It was like all types of experimental music festivals that would book, you know, Amon Tobin and those kinds of artists. And they would book a scratch DJ like myself, like Kid Koala, like Craze or Qbert. Like we were put into that sphere. Absolutely. It's interesting to think back, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to ask, like, was there any, I mean, okay, so there's a lot of press attention and yeah. there's a lot of um, huge amount of interest. Was there any resentment at all from your, your peers within the turntable yeah, community? At this? Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Um, but I learned a lot of lessons fast from, from what happened in, in those years, you know? Um, I met my heroes right away, Hubert, Rock Raider, Mixmaster Mike, those, you know, those uh, DJs that I was 
studying on videotape. I, I met them, yeah. you know, right as I was winning those battles and they all really welcomed me in. In fact, Hubert brought me into the Invisible Scratch Pickles, the, the, his DJ crew. Um, but but all those DJs that I named really welcomed me with open arms. Um, and it was really moving to, you know, to, to, to feel welcomed by, you know, this, this older generation of my heroes. Um, and also there was a whole slew of other DJs who, you know, had been trying to win these battles for, for many years themselves, who, when they saw me win, uh, you know, all had something to say, something sort of dismissive, like, oh, he just won because he looks like a cute little kid or whatever. He doesn't really, if I was in that battle, he wouldn't have won and that, that sort of thing, you know? So people kind of testing me right away as I, you know, I didn't even hit puberty and like, <laughs> I'm like <laughs> propulsed on, onto this worldwide scene and, and, and kind of getting whispers of people sort of testing me from, from everywhere. And so I had to, you know, build thick skin on one hand and, and kind of just, you know, have confidence in, in what I was doing. Um, but also certainly noticed that the DJs who I idolized were very gracious and, and, and were able to, you know, there's this sort of like hip hop bravado in, in that scene where, you know, the, yeah, the, those heroes of mine, they still had, when it came to their own work, um, a certain level of, of uh, confidence and, and posturing. But when they saw me, they were still able to encourage me and make me feel valued. So I remember sort of just clocking that difference where I was like, okay, well, the ones that really accomplished what I want to accomplish, they're able to, to show love and give props and you know not have this weird sort of insecure thing that I'm noticing. And there's all these other DJs who are talking shit, but... I don't even want to be where they're at. So let me just focus on like the path that I want to be on and, you know, and also sort of like show love to other DJs too and sort of, you know, pass it on. And, and that's, that's, you know, that showed me where I wanted to go. So let me ask you about the way turntablism has developed. Cause obviously what's happened in the, in the subsequent 25 odd years yeah. is as, as we said, like, you know, vinyl has become obsolete really as a, as a kind of performance item and, you know, all this new, new technology has, has come to the fore. So how has turntablism coped with all that stuff? Like what does it, what does a DMC contest look like now? Now a DMC contest has a lot of different categories. I think, you know, there was a period of uh, probably 10 years where um, DMC lost touch with some of the progress of the scene. I think they waited too long to allow things like Serato and different kinds of technologies. And um, it kind of sectioned them off from a whole generation of new DJs that were embracing new technology. Now everything's kind of reconnected. And I, you know, in 2017, I started my own sort of franchise of, of battles called the Goldie Awards that I've done in New York. And I was even doing online during the pandemic. And, you know, that's something that um, Craze and a bunch of my friends and peers have helped me organize too. But, and that's uh, a battle that has a DJ category and, and a beat battle, a producer category for people using all kinds of, you know, finger drumming and, and you know, MPC-like controllers and whatever they want to use. But not, yeah, nowadays, 
there, there's kind of more categories than ever. There's certain battles that are online only when people, where people sort of, uh, the contestants send in their videos and judges just watch the videos from home. There's battles that are still in person. There's team battles. There's a specialized scratching competition, beat juggling competition, this and that. I, I, I feel that it's gotten a bit too, um, uh, spread and subdivided mm-hmm. where like the, the end result is there's a little bit less of a feeling of, you know, one reigning champ compared to, right. to another era. But, you know, at, well, the DJs that are competing now are, are still incredible. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always amazed at, at seeing, you know, the talent that's out, out there. And I'm glad that there still is new talent. And actually there's like really young talent, like every year that we did the Goldie Awards, that's, I wasn't able to organize it this year because I kind of had my hands full with the Fool's Gold anniversary. But every other year since 2017, we, we threw the Goldie competition. And, and every year there's someone who's 11 years old, 10 years old, 8 years old. And, you know, it's it's amazing to see that. I used to be the young one at, at 15, you know, so I'm glad that, that that's happening now. Um, and there's a lot of new equipment, you know, in, in the last 5, 10 years that I think kind of like unblocked the uh, us creativity sort of blocking that might have been there for a little while. I think there was a, there there was a period where not much new was being done, and once there started being some of these newer mixers that have you know cue pads and buttons on the mixer, and you know now there's even new turntables that have you know buttons and controllers on the turntables and the pitch goes even further and you can, there, you know, there's even sort of hybrid stuff that's somewhere between production style, you know, machine style pads that can connect to your DJ software, whether it's Serato yeah. or Tractor or whatever, that's opened up a whole bunch of new possibilities, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, the DJ tech is an interesting thing actually, because I mean, obviously like turntablism is, is uh, necessarily centered around technical skill right and it's something that yeah yeah it's literally what it is but i mean yeah like in i suppose like house and techno sort of djing i mean i guess the sort of criticism or the criticism from old old guys like me is that the new the new tech has made it too easy to dj right yeah um which is kind of a bullshit complaint but i mean (laughs) the, the sync button and things like that yeah right well i mean not just a sing button i mean it's just very easy but just seeing seeing the exact the yeah, right. value it's, on cd <laughs> sure it's just very easy to mix on them yeah know? which is not it's not necessarily a bad thing but i mean those of us who you know sweated over but what's it sorry i mean just if i can just finish the question like, yeah, what has been the the developments in in the turntablist sector of dj tech like presumably it's not been you know focused on making things easier or has it like what what's the situation there it's made some stuff easier but it's kind of forced people to get creative with other stuff right right and it but the one thing that i think still isn't quite the same you know so there's all kinds of new tricks that people can even i myself can do now with you know a mixer that has crazy digital effects pitch shifting and you know now with you can be like you can literally like scratch a record with like a, you know some of your fingers and hit cue buttons with your other fingers at the same time and all you know there's all kinds of things you can do now that didn't even exist before so it's opened up new possibilities the one thing that ultimately doesn't quite feel the same to me 
is the fact that you can make your own records now, which again, I do all the time too. But when we used to have to, when we used to be forced to use something that exists on a record that you bought and whatever was on that record was all you had access to. And you just had to squeeze ideas out of this record that was in front of you that you didn't right. make. Yeah. Yeah, that okay. forced a type of, um, that forced the type of creativity that, that paradoxically, right? Like you would think that if you had, now that digitally you can make, put anything, you, any idea you can dream up, you can put it on a file and then that can be like the tool that you use to perform your DJ routine. You would think that that would, that that would uh, facilitate the most insanely imaginative routines, but somehow it, it doesn't quite land the same way as when we, when we were forced to only use what was on a record that we bought and that's all we had access to. Yeah. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Yeah, having having that sort of constraint can be so. Uh, it can be. It can force you into such creativity, and I think it does. It's the same. Yeah. It's the same in the studio. You know, I think you know, when you it's the the, the classic thing of having endless plugins and you don't know what to do with them but if mm-hmm. you sit there with a drum machine and a, and a kind of baseline generator suddenly you can, suddenly it all works right yeah i think those sorts of constraints can be amazing yeah yeah in, in over the last two three years starting the pandemic i uh i taught myself how to use the sp1200 sampler right which has mm. 10 seconds of sample time last year i put out two eps only made on that drum machine they're called 10 seconds <laughs> volume one and two because i'm using dsp I find that uh, I find that my beats on the SP twelve hundred are probably more original and interesting than what what I make on Ableton. Yeah, and I've had to just sort of accept that. And I, you know, it's uh, yeah. I, I I like how the constraints of that drum machine just force me to make it work. You know. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very real thing. Yeah, it's it's actually so fascinating that you said that about records because I'd never, I would never have thought that, but it makes so much sense. It really does. It really does. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, and and I'm sure a similar thing could be said about sampling, where you know, if if you if you give a producer two records and you say, you know, make make a track, make make five tracks out of what's on these two records, versus giving them an entire record collection. I'm not sure which out, outcome will be better. The, the thing that they make with just those two records might be more interesting or cooler or, or coherent or something, you know? Mm. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. So, okay. Um, yeah, tell me about coming out of just being a, a very narrow hip-hop DJ into this kind of wider 
yeah world to the wider ecosystem as we as we described uh, at the start i mean because it's funny because I mean, you mentioned obviously dj craze and i remember him becoming i remember him playing first playing sets in the uk drum and bass sets Mm-hmm. And there being a huge amount of interest, like curiosity, I think probably, mm-hmm. like what's this guy going to do with this musical genre? And there was probably, I mean, I was a bit too young to be directly involved in the scene, but I was, you know, I was going to raves and, you know, I was kind of aware of what was going on. But I, I imagine there was probably a bit of, you know, skepticism amongst the, you know, the DJs, the old heads, maybe. I mean, there must have been a bit. Probably, yeah. Because yeah. People like to say that. I mean, it, I, I do think that there is, not, not talking about craze specifically at all, but there is a thing where a lot of scratch DJs don't fully manage to break out of that hyper-specialized branch and sort of break into the world of clubbing and festivals or original production and music. Um, it's, it's a leap that's hard to do. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that was, but that was phase one of my career. You know, the, the, even when we talk about the Fool's Gold anniversary at the start of our conversation, um, you know, that my label is 15 or 16 years old, depending <laughs> what, what, you know, uh, what truth you, you go by. But, um, but Fool's Gold is like phase two or three of my career. You know, I, 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 um, I've been DJing for 27, 28 years. I, in fact, I had another record label. Um, with my brother when we were coming up in the Montreal scene, an underground hip-hop label called Audio Research, where we put out underground hip-hop records. And, and that doing that, you know, gave me some of the some of the lessons that, or, you know, some of the know-how to start Fool's Gold, you know, 10 years later. But yeah, breaking out of the, the scratch world was was kind of a leap, and, and even just getting into different genres was has been a, a, a whole path that kind of, happened over many many years and if you go see me play now i'm i play mostly house and and you know things related to house and and mix in some classics and and you know some faster stuff some slower stuff too and i you know of course i still play some hip-hop sets i kind of play everything and i think i play house music with the touch and approach of a hip-hop dj yeah um but i but hip-hop is is not the main thing that i play now Whereas, you know, there was, like I mentioned, the first 10 years of my career, it was all I played and all I cared about. So it's been a whole path. But I think part of that has to do with just how young I was in that first phase when I was only in the underground hip hop scene and and only in the scratch scene. You know, I retired from battling at 18, you know, so it's like (laughs) at that age, I was was, was still young enough to be able to absorb new things and learn new things and learn how to properly rock a party. And then, you know, one thing that was let pretty me, big I, for I, me... I, let me, can I just okay. interrupt you? Because there's a couple of specific things I want to ask. Because yeah. when I was, I mean, when I was reading about all this, it, what it really reminded me of, and, and this is maybe way off the mark, but you know how amateur boxers have a big circuit they do, and then some of them make it to the Olympics. And when you, if you win a gold medal at the Olympics, you go pro. Yeah. It, it almost reminded me of that. Your career trajectory sort of reminded me of that. That's an observation. Yeah. But, but the kind of more specific thing I wanted to ask was when you stopped doing straight hip hop, was that a big statement in your career? Was, there, was that a very much a kind of, I'm, I want to do something different now? Or was it kind of more of a gradual thing? Somewhere between both. It happened gradually, but there was definitely a point in the early 2000s where I realized that I was still playing a lot of 90s hip hop and that I was kind of stuck in a loop. And, and then it, I made a concerted effort to break out of that loop. 
And there's a few things that I think coincided in the early to mid 2000s, some of it being technology, where I met the people who founded Serato and I became the first Serato and Dorsey. And making that transition to digital files made it easier for me to also download and, and trade and, and just grab music of different genres. At a point in time where hip hop was a little boring to me, um, around 2003 or four or whatever, and I was just kind of more excited or becoming excited about whether it be like just mastering some of the classics and the older stuff to, to then in the mid 2000s, discovering a new type of electronic music on blogs and just being like, well, what's, you know, what's this sound? What's, what's this? What's justice? What's crookers? What's full wax? What's, you know, mastercraft? What's all this stuff? This sounds crazy. Sinden and switch, of course, you know, and, and um, sort of like mixing in hip hop acapellas and vocals with this weird new sort of electro thing that I was discovering online. Um, all those things came together, but at any one of those little steps that I took, whether it be using a laptop with the first version of Serato or, you know, starting to venture into different sounds beyond hip hop, each one of those steps felt like kind of a risk or a leap, like, all right, I'm going to try this and I, I hope people rock with it. Um, and, and I just sort of kept exploring. And once I started playing, you know, a broader selection of genres, I also found an energy at my shows that was so contagious and more exciting than that traditional, just sort of head knob, head knob. Yeah, of, I mean, a traditional hip hop. <laughs> I like that. That's my, that was my next question, right? Yeah, that was my yeah. next question. So how much, how much kind of, um, well, so you got a great reaction from the crowd because that's, that's by no means a given, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, it, it worked with crowds, and um, and what about the people in the what about people in the hip hop community and the turntablers community? What did they think about your move here? So fortunately, they a lot of people were sort of a lot of my peers were sort of curious about it, and and um, also ventured into that in the years that followed because that could have gone different ways. You know, I've had plenty of conversations. <laughs> with some of my DJ friends who changed genres. I remember having a great conversation with, with Zinc years, 10 years ago about when he went from, you know, when, when, when he went from jungle to house um, and what that was like for him. And, you know, obviously with craze, I talked about that too. Um, but for me going from hip hop to all this other stuff, I don't know if it's cause the way that I spun the records still felt like me. I, I, the people that came to my show still supported it, but I also made a concerted effort to go and find a new audience too. And um, yeah, kind of just explore this new, there was a new, a new scene that was taking shape in North America and then like sort of connecting dots with people in other cities and other countries and continents too. By then, by the mid two thousands, you know, through MySpace and, you know, um, just that scene that I was describing of kind of a new, I mean, now we call it blog house, but just kind of everything that was all, all this sort of experimentation that happened online. Yeah. I really embraced that scene. And I moved to New York in those years and kind of like fell into uh, a scene here in, in, in New York and in some of the neighboring cities that was really exploding in, 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 in those kinds of parties and genres. And, 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 and so 
when I experimented with different genres, I wasn't even really playing for my old audience that much. I was going and finding a new audience that was into this new music that I was into. That new audience welcomed me. And my old audience kind of saw it and, and they were down. And I, I was able to connect those dots between, you know, those generations. And, and that became a pretty big thing for the whole rest of my career. It was like that cross-generational thing. And, and I, but I also think that like, in a sense, we spent a good amount of time here talking about, you know, my teenage years as a scratch DJ and a battle DJ and my years in the underground hip hop scene. But I think when you zoom out, there's a mentality that I embraced in those years that stayed my mentality all through the years, all the way to now in terms of what I'm drawn to and, and what type of um, environment and creativity I like to keep myself surrounded in where like at the end of the day, like the mid nineties underground hip hop scene was very independently minded. People were pressing their own vinyl, you know, had direct relationships with, the record stores and, and, and the journalists and all this stuff in different cities. And it, 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 it was DIY. It was, it was indie, indie minded. Um, and, and just kind of groups of friends figuring out how to do stuff together, you know? And I think every couple of years, the music scene and music industry goes through cycles where things go back to that mentality where there's kind of a sea of change and it becomes ripe for like, again, just a couple of friends getting together and being like, no one else gets it. Let's just do this shit ourselves and figuring it out, you know? And I think, you know, in a sense that mid two thousands era that I'm describing, which ended up being, you know, the backbone for my friends and I started fool's gold, starting fool's gold. And, you know, the years where, you know, you just, you'd get on MySpace and find, you know, just cool, weird, new bootlegs and mashups and remixes by the producers I was just naming that felt like a return to that mindset of DIY, of kind of breaking the rules and, and just the, the parties and the nightlife being the breeding ground as opposed to the industry, like going from the bottom up rather than, than top down. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I mean, and that was the spirit for founding Fool's Gold. And, and, you know, in the years that followed, things got bigger than things, you know, and not even just for us, but for the scene, you know, America discovered... <laughs> electronic music in, in a, on a bigger level and then things kind of crashed and built again and all this stuff. But every few years, I love to find these moments that feel like we can just roll up our sleeves and just do stuff ourselves. Whether I'm making house, you know, whether Armand and I are, are doing duck sauce and, you know, or, or I'm doing house music by myself on my SB 1200 or, or, or I'm trying to foster the next generation of battle DJs of all genres with the Goldie Awards or whatever, or, or just, you know, running Fool's Gold in an independent business that does its own, you know, events and, and branding and merch and all this stuff. It's always that, that DIY mentality and approach, you know, and, and I think there's certain people who might have over time who may have discovered me from one or two tracks that I made that got bigger, you know, here and there, whether it's Barbra Streisand or Heads Will Roll, and they, they might think that I'm operating, you know, on this bigger scale and and then sort of realize that, like, all I care about is really just, you know, supporting my friend's music and, and you know, st- keeping keeping my feet in the underground and, and, and just finding cool, weird shit. Like, that. weird is a positive word for me, <laughs> and I just look for, you know what I mean? 
that's what that's yeah, what yeah. I look for through time. Absolutely. So I've got to ask you about Dark Source because our man is I've I've never met him, but obviously he's a oh, man. Uh, he's a legendary figure because of his influence on UK garage as much as anything else. For anyone in the uh, UK, that's like that's the shit that we fucking I, I mean he is unbelievable the legend of Armin and Van Helden is just incredible in the UK scene because of those yeah. because of those tunes but before we before we do that let me just ask you about being Kanye's tour DJ because that's something I didn't realize until again like this afternoon <laughs> so oh, okay um yeah, yeah tell mean, me- a lot of people sort of discovered me through that too there's like there's people that have found out about me through all kinds of pockets over the years and then I you know then I try to make sure they know about the rest of the stuff. So yeah, that was, that was a big part of well, it. Yeah. So let me, let me ask you specifically, I mean, Kanye's come up once before on this podcast with someone who knows him directly. Uh-huh. So what's he like actually? I can't tell you what he's like now. And, and I'm not interested myself in knowing what he's like now because he's right. He's, you know, he's crossed a couple lines that, that, um, yes, you know, that just, uh, don't need, I don't think we should give him our attention right now, but, but in, I can tell you what it was like in 2004. <laughs> I worked with Kanye from 2004 to the start of 2008 for like, for, for almost four years was a close collaborator of his technically was his tour DJ, but scratched on some of the records he produced from gold digger to some of the common albums he made uh, played him Daft Punk, like introduced him to the French, the Busy P and those guys. Um, um, and, but we all, you know, and we, we, we even just shared a lot of resources. Uh, you know, he would, he and I helped each other out with a lot of, you know, branding, creative direction kind of conversations. Um, so, you know, he and I met and worked together in a period where both of us in our respective careers, even though mine was much smaller than his, were very fruitful periods of change, um, sort of formative years, you know? Mm. So yep. I met him right after the college dropout album came out and he needed a tour DJ. He, we met in London. He saw me DJ at, at Deal Real Records in London. Really? And, um, yeah. And, 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 um, and that led to a four year working relationship. And he was, um, an extremely stimulating, curious, um, sort of all absorbing person to be around. And it was super inspiring to work with someone who thought, who, you know, who approached everything with such a huge vision, you know, who, while he was making a beat would think about, you know, what the video would look like, what the artwork would look like, who'd be featured on the song, you know, all that stuff while he's chopping up a snare, like that kind of thinking big. I came from such an underground scene that it, it really changed how I thought. And at, at that point in time, Kanye's music, if you remember those, especially the first two albums, you know, he brought back a type of soul sampling approach to hip hop after a couple of years where everything was very synthesized and, and, and dry, he brought back sampling was bringing back kind of the spirit of, you know, a tribe called quest and, and, Reza Wu-Tang kind of production, um, you know, this sort of authentic thing, but he was able to make really big songs with, you know, what felt like a, a, an authentic sound. And, um, and that influ- influenced my approach to DJing and turntablism too, where it kind of put, and, you know, he had me do scratch solos in front of huge, you know, stadium crowds and, 
I had to figure out how to do something similar with my craft where I came from this very quote unquote authentic place. And, and I wanted to sort of tweak and rearrange my performances and tricks to make them accessible to all kinds of audiences without compromise. I think he was able to do that with his music at that time, especially. And, and I, I, I took that on as a challenge literally for scratching. Like, Oh, how can I, how, what, what can I, you know, what kind of, you know, scratch, you know, beat juggle routine can I do? Like the first tour I did with Kanye, we were opening for Usher. So I was playing for Usher fans and he (laughs) wanted me to do like a minute and a half solo. Well, what do you, what do you do? Like the really the Usher fans in 2004 don't even know what a turntable is. <laughs> so, and they can barely see me. We're in, a, we're in an arena or a stadium. What, what do I do to still get a crowd reaction? It was an incredible challenge, you know, and I learned a ton from doing that. So that's what those years were like to me. And it's in the middle of that stint of working with him that I started also on the side, messing around with electronic music and starting to, produce more and starting to make remixes and started fool's gold and i kind of left the kanye gig because i started fool's gold and i needed to have more time to nurture this new thing Uh yeah um yeah yeah, it was it was a huge part and it it was definitely a big factor to answer your earlier question of me breaking through post battle phase of my career right you know it was this big jet engine that introduced me to a whole bunch of people after I stopped battling and they helped me figure out yeah. like a career path. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredible opportunity, right? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I mean, that's yeah. really fascinating. So, okay. Uh, let's jump ahead then to working with Armand Van Helden. As, as I mentioned, yeah. most, most, most of the people listening to this are going to be British probably. And they all know <laughs> the tunes. It's difficult yeah. to overstate how how big those tunes were in the yeah. UK. Like it's it's, yeah. it's it's mad. Yeah. So yeah, how did you start working with them? We became friends first, and um, I think I had to also get to know the character. Armand is is uh, one of one, a very special human. I mean, he's a larger than life figure, man, just looking at him from afar, but like, he does seem yeah, to be a big personality. Yeah. yeah. But also he has his own way of working where, especially in those years, um, you know, you hear of Armand Van Helden and you, and you, and you hear of like the, this huge output of music. He made so many tracks, especially in the nineties. And then when I met him, I had, you know, it was during this, I met him in 2006, right when I moved to New York and we kind of clicked right away and started hanging out. But at first, you know, there's a few times where I suggested that maybe we collab or try something. And he was sort of politely, was like, oh, I'm just, I'm just chilling this week. I'm just hanging out. And I sort of came to realize that he had this sort of leisurely life where he really just hung out on most days and maybe went tanning or maybe went for a walk or just walked <laughs> on the sidewalk and picked up rare books or records from some weirdo on the sidewalk sale. And once in a while would go in the studio and make a track, but that track was Dizzy Rascal Bonkers or My, My, My. Like that's, but right. he wasn't hustling every single day trying to make that track. He was spending most of his time just chilling. And once in a while he would go and make bonkers. <laughs> Which is crazy, but that's how he is. That is that, that is crazy. Yeah. 
That's so, so far removed from how I have to work in this year. I have to, oh, I have to work. I have to throw so much stuff at the wall for get something to stick. You know, mm-hmm. I really do. Yeah, and he's told me that in his earlier years, he you know he did the grinds for sure, but but he developed this sort of like inner compass or something where he just knows how to aim and 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 he gets it. And he has obviously amazing ears. Um, and I think there's a few things about him. He's just kind of always drawn to new sounds and different shit. And he just kind of gets it year after year. Um, mm. but yeah, initially we, we, you know, I just moved to New York. We met up, I think there was kind of a kindred spirit thing where we're both hip hop kids who got into house music, but you know, are more attached to hip hop identity, regardless of what we make or play as DJs. That was already the case back when I met him. So I think he saw me and thought it was kind of interesting that, you know, a track, the DJ that he remembers hearing as a, as a battle, you know, DMC guy was now messing around with new kind of house electro and, and, and whatever, you know, new sound was happening in those years and was making something kind of similar to the music he, he made. So he, I think he was curious. I, I was just psyched to meet Armand Van Helden. And, and yeah, we just became friends. And, and it's only two or three years later um, that we finally sat down and made music. And we you know, started Duck Sauce and kind of uh, figured out a sound sort of right away. And for me, it was always this dream of you know, having access to his records where... You know, I'll just go to his apartment. He lives in Miami now, but at the time he lived in New York. I lived in New York too. I would just go to his place and, and uh, I would kind of just, uh, he would play me samples and I would, I would choose something and then we'd make a track together. So yeah, it was great fun. Great fun. And, and um, I think, we, you know, we sort of stumbled into a sound that maybe felt refreshing to people because we, when we started you know, Duck Sauce and the first song we put out was Anyway in 2009. You know, that very distorted electro sound was really, really big for many years at that point. And everyone was just like trying to out-distort their distortion and just make the, the, <laughs> the loudest bass lines imaginable. And then we, we've just kind of had this instinct, this hunch to make a palate cleanser and just, you know, loop up a, a Billy Disco record. and. Um, I think anyway kind of fell on welcoming ears. And um, so that first record was, you know, pretty well received. Um, and then uh, the following year we made Barbara Streisand and that just kind of went out of control. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who came up with the hook? Who's, I mean, whose idea was it to put that hook in? It, it, it was a group effort. Uh, ultimately it was him and it's his voice. Um, <laughs> really? But yeah, it was kind of yeah, yeah. It's his voice. I mean, there's other records where we we've both used our voices on 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 our songs. We just kind of you know tweak effects on it. But he's got a great voice. Um, I mean, yeah, we yeah we we basically we it's genius in its simplicity, right? I mean, the first time you hear that, it's just it's just in your head. You're never gonna forget that, you know. Hopefully, yeah. I don't know. It's it's uh it's you know <laughs> seriously because it's it's. On one level, it's yeah. On one level, it's fucking dumb. But on another level, it's it's really pop genius. Well, yeah, it's mostly dumb. <laughs> it's mostly dumb. Maybe a little <laughs> bit of pop genius. Maybe I don't know. Or at least there's something catchy there. I think Armand and I realized, um, especially when we made that song, that when we link up, when we get together, 
we have this little sense of humor that we share where we just get into ridiculous stuff and the the mm. the the weirder and funnier we get in our thought process as we create songs the, the you know the more unique the result is so we we end up just sort of like fostering that and just trying to we get into like our little zone we're like you know beavis and butthead the cartoon beavis and butthead <laughs> the american thing just these these two idiots that's that's how he and i feel when we're together so we just get into like our our you know s- stupid little jokes and uh make tracks <laughs> in that mindset and, and yeah that's it uh that definitely comes through on the records in a good way <laughs> so how did you guys feel when i say you guys i mean the North American contingent doing this kind of in this kind of musical area. How did you guys feel about EDM when it became huge? Um, I think that you know that was a kind of a complex thing in the sense that it turned into kind of a tornado, and it, and it turned into a thing that even those of us in the scene that really had our hands in laying down the ground, groundwork for that scene to take off the way that it did, there's a point where you feel like it, it slips out of your hands and it turns into a whole thing that you can't control. Um, and sometimes the sound even changes or the aesthetics change to something that you sometimes don't even like anymore. But for me, it was always important to keep a positive outlook. I think some people were soured by just what that became, especially during those, you know, the first half of the 2010s during those years. Um, mm. But, you know, so there's a little bit of a be careful what you wish for kind of sense with what that became for a few years. Um, But for me, you know, ever since I was a teenager scratching, I wanted DJing to have legitimacy. I wanted people to take DJs seriously. I wanted DJs to be taken seriously as performers, as musicians. So when DJs started being put on main stages on the first stage, on the big stage of a festival or on the cover of magazines, even though some of my friends and peers would be like, oh, but that DJ is easy or that, for me, it's more like, but our scene wins. Like we, as a collective, we win, you know? Mm. And um, there was a whole bunch of, you know, pressure and expectations that came with that. And it turned into, you know, a whole, a whole crazy arms race of, you know, who's got stage production and who's, making a song that hits this or that chart on top 40 radio, this or that, it turned into a whole thing. And it was, it, it was a whirlwind. And I'm certainly more fond of the years where things feel, feel more independent compared to what happened during like that boom of EDM, especially in North America. But, um, but it also helped us grow, grow a whole new audience of a new generation that became really curious and, Maybe their gateway was some record that some of us find cheesy, but then they were like, well, what else is, is there? And then they start listening to other cool stuff, your label, all kinds of great shit, you know? So, you know, it was the way in for, for a lot of kids. Yeah. 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 I, I hear you on that, definitely. And I think there was a broad, um, I mean, that there was an element to it, which was ultimately, I think, useful and positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was easy um, I think it was easy to be down on the music at the time because let's let's face it, quite a lot of the music was was pretty bad. Yeah, EDM became a, a dirty word. Yeah, with some justification, I would argue. <laughs> you know? Yeah, sure. I get. Yeah, no, it, it, beca- it was it, it became like hair metal. 
it a hundred percent. Right. You know, yeah. The, that's like, yeah. You know, like the 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 stage shows. The I mean, DJs were making ballads. <laughs> <laughs> It became I mean, like, that. yeah, it, that's not what we got in this for. It certainly became like, like hair metal, but by the way, I like some hair metal and, and, oh, so do and I, there's yeah. a similar, there's a similar virtuosity, you know, there was, there was like new young DJs who to me were like Joe Satriani of Ableton right. and Joe Satriani is not a cool guitar player, you know, but, <laughs> um, so this sort of like prodigious but like not not anchored in what we all think is cool that phenomenon that certainly happened to our scene um but i don't know things happen how they happen and scenes change and and i do think that in hindsight and in the big picture it helped djing get a certain level of legitimacy that it helped you know the industry itself build more of a structure even in terms of you know, management companies, festival companies, like just, you know, a certain like back office thing that was like missing for a long time finally got added and, or, or built out. Um, that's what happened when money comes. And, um, you know, the, the EDM scene definitely crashed after a couple of years in North America, all those Vegas casinos that were booking tons of DJs, um, you know, pivoted a few times and, and, you know, then in re- like tech house became EDM. Like there's, there's a bunch of things that happened in recent years, but sure. you know, for, for me, it's always a question of just uh, constantly searching, trying to find the cool shit, trying to find the next shit and, and uh, just kind of challenging myself. Like there's a, even just as someone who started as a scratch DJ and who now makes electronic music and who, you know, signs and signs and helps develop artists or whatever. There's, you know, there's a, when I, there's a certain like, I don't know, adulthood that I reached in my DJing where I felt like there's plenty of DJs that I idolize and that I, that I model self my, myself after, but there might not be one singular DJ that is my role model. I kind of tried to get to a point where I could just make my own path, you know, while paying respect to everyone, of course, but I've, I really have tried to make my own path for a long time now. And so even with that mindset, when there's elements of the scene, that I don't love or when things get a little cheesy here and there, I, I'm sort of like, okay, well, where am I going to go? Or what am I going to do about it? Or what could I make to try to take things in the direction that I want? Yeah, absolutely, man. Totally. So yeah, this has been great, man. Let me, let me just ask you a couple more to finish up. A couple more general ones. Do you think that DJs break records in the same way that they used to these days? Like the, the DJ filled a very specific function of, of, in the music ecosystem of breaking a record, particularly dance records. Do you think that, was, that still works in the same way? Not in the same way. Um, not, not, not on the same scale. I, to a certain extent, yes. I think nothing will ever replace when there's a record that gets played everywhere and um, it just kind of, you know, catches on like wildfire. And, and nothing is as sustainable as, 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 solid as when it starts, you know, from the underground and from the DJs, but there's certainly some dance records that break on streaming or on radio or elsewhere. And, uh, you know, and we're kind of in this weird period where something needs to connect the dots. Like if there's a song that's big in clubs, 
labels are looking at Shazam charts because they want people to go from the club to Shazam to Spotify or whatever, you know, or like something breaks on TikTok, but then labels hope, labels hope that that also, that, that's the funny thing to me is when something's big on TikTok and then, and then DJs start playing it because they know that the audience has heard that song on TikTok. Like there's something kind of strange and backwards about that to me, going from TikTok to the club to then maybe Spotify or somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, totally, totally. It's it's a it's also a different, um, a slightly different expectation, I think, from from the audience nowadays, from what they expect from a DJ. I find. I mean, and I think you can overstate that. I mean, I, I oh, for sure, people go see. Yeah, people go see a DJ as if they're going to see a band, and they expect you to play your biggest song. Right. Of course, of course. That 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 role of the DJ as as the sort of. Uh, take me on a journey character mm-hmm. has turned into, yep. I mean, I get out of my shows, people, uh, I can tell the, the sort of casual fans who haven't seen me play before, but who know some of my records on Spotify, who within 10 minutes of my set will flash their phone in my face that says play heads will roll, you know, 10 minutes <laughs> in. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, man. Well, listen, last question. Yep. What's your number one place to find new music? Ah, uh, I don't even know if I have one answer for that. It's really okay. Give me, yeah, give me a yeah, a yeah, key. a couple. I, you know, I look at Beatport charts by other DJs. I'll check out, you know, again charts and playlists by DJs I like, and go track stuff down on Bandcamp. Once I'm on Bandcamp, I go down rabbit holes there. I do check out Spotify playlists, of course, but it's yeah, I it starts with one thing, whether it's someone's playlist, and then I go and discover from there um that's usually how i find stuff yeah i mean uh music discovery is a, a thorny topic when it's something we've talked about a lot on the show and it's difficult now i think i think it, it is tough well yeah because everything's on the internet in one way or another and like everyone has the same internet so how as a dj you have access to the same music as your fans your audience the people that are listening to you but you're right. but we have to find things that they haven't found so absolutely yeah anyway man listen thank you so much for your time man it's been great man thank you so much it's really a pleasure i've I've been a a fan of yours for a long time it's really great to to finally connect yeah that was a track that was really fascinating i thought in certain respects anyway it was amazing to hear him talk about turntablism and the changes that was really interesting actually the changes in turntablism over time as uh, different technologies have affected it and the constraints that you used to have from scratch records that was that was really interesting really really interesting and um yeah what a nice guy what an interesting guy it's funny because i think the people generally speaking the people who stick around in the music industry are actually usually pretty nice like there's a lot of dicks in the music industry but the people who endure are usually the good ones, I find. I mean, there are exceptions to that, of course. <laughs> but um, I think generally speaking, that's that's a rule of thumb which generally holds up. And yeah, he absolutely is one of the good guys. So yeah, amazing to have him on. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Okay, that's about it for us this week. A reminder that you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash official. One of two very well-priced tiers on there. £3.50, four US dollars or £8.50, 10 US dollars per month. 
Lots of goodies that go with each of those levels. You can also donate directly to the show via PayPal or a credit card on scubaofficial.io slash support. If you particularly liked an episode, then sling us a few quid. That'd be nice of you. It really does all help, I have to say. It genuinely does. So yeah, if you don't want to do that, if you don't want to support financially, completely understandable. And I feel like a bit of a dick asking for it, to be honest, but such is life in the 21st century. You can do something nice by following the show wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hit the five-star button on the ratings and leave us a gushing review if you feel so inclined. That would also be nice. That really would help too. That would be good. Follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes to the playlist. And join us in the Discord for a chat. Hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord gets you into our Discord server. And there's a lot of nice people in there for you to talk to, as well as myself as well. So you have anything to say to me about the show, that's the place to do it. Okay, this has been a fun episode. I will see you back here for episode 99. Same time, same place next week for the next episode. Episode 99. But not a diving podcast. Thank you. Thank you.